And then I also just wanna take a moment, and I'm not, I actually really debated on how to, um, how to think about this, but today is um, the anniversary of 9-11, and I just wanted to acknowledge that um, and the loss that was incurred um, on that day. Um, and to think about this pivotal moment in our country uh, where we came under attack. And not only do I wanna recognize those who gave their lives, especially the first responders and in being part of that rescue. Um, but also I want to just um, acknowledge and remember that 11, that 11 well, it was more than 11 years ago, 2001, 2011. That was, wait, that's 2001. Can we do the, 21 years ago, thank you, Michael. <laughs> 21 years ago um, that we experienced, yeah, I, I can do math. Um, but to acknowledge the loss that we incurred and also to acknowledge the impact of foreign oppression. Okay, um, and that kind of leads me to where um, we're gonna go today in terms of thinking about foreign oppression and what it means to repel uh, foreign attack. And so um, I wanna start with a story. We're gonna be talking about a difficult passage and I know I wasn't here this week for Life Group, but um, I know we are gonna be tackling a dif difficult passage from Mark chapter 11. And I wanna tell a story. In the Aeneid by Virgil, after a 10 year siege, the Greeks um, had an idea um, from Odysseus, and they constructed this massive wooden horse, and they hid a select force of men inside the horse, including Odysseus himself. And as they were laying Troy to siege, um, the Greeks pretended to sail away, and the Trojans pulled this horse into their city. And that night, as this horse, this massive wooden horse is sitting there and that the, the Trojans viewed as a gift, the Greek, fo the Greek force creeps out of the horse and opens the gate for the rest of the Greek army, which had sailed back under the cover of night and destroyed the city. And that strategy is called a Trojan horse. And so from that point forward, anytime you have, and this is like true in cyber attacks, anytime you have some kind of secret um, invasive force penetrating to the heart of a system, organization, fortress, whatever, um, and then finding a way to exploit those vulnerabilities, that's what we call the tro Trojan horse strategy. And that's what I sense is happening today in this passage. So I've already given you a little bit of a preview into how I view this passage. And so let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 11. And we're gonna read about this strategy that Jesus employs. Mark chapter 11. And we're gonna be reading all of uh, verses one through 25, but I'm just gonna read verses one through 11 first. And I know it's actually, a, it's a good chunk of text. It's, it's a lot. Mark chapter 11, verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said 
and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So we've spent much of the past year going through the gospel of Mark. And today we're entering into chapter 11. And chapter 11 is where everything slows down. So from chapter 11 to 16, you have one week of Jesus's life. Okay. And so the first 10 chapters are all about the first, the, the first, the three years of Jesus's ministry. And then all of a sudden things slow down to the focus on the last week, the passion week of Jesus's life. Okay. And that's true in all the gospels where most of the text spent, a lot of the text spent is on the passion week, the last week of Jesus's life. And so this is no exception in this book of Mark. And so this last third of the gospel about Jesus focuses on like five or six days. And Mark is all, all about immediacy. And yet things slow down here. Things just kind of go in slow motion. And so what we have here is Jesus orchestrating this special entrance for himself into Jerusalem. And it's, there's no other way to say it. It's peculiar. It is peculiar. And so Jesus makes this interesting request and he says, could you find a cult, <clears throat> a cult tied? And what I want to first recognize is that a cult is the offspring of a donkey. So this is a donkey that Jesus is asking for <clears throat> and it's not a horse. And why is that significant? In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So this is an Old Testament prophet. Shout aloud, O daughter of Israel. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so there is a prophecy about Jesus riding on a donkey. There's a prophecy about Messiah, a coming king who's humble and comes in on a donkey. And a donkey in the ancient Near East is a sign of humility and service and suffering. And yet there is an unmistakable connection here that when, uh, when Jesus is doing this, that he is going to be recognized as a king. This is, this is a kingly ritual. This is a coronation that Jesus is proposing to happen. <clears throat> and so even though he's a serving king and a suffering king and a humble king, it's completely consistent with what Jesus has been teaching and modeling throughout the gospel is that he is a humble servant. <clears throat> and then you have this interesting um, ceremony where the people, as they, the Israelites and G uh, the Jews, as they see Jesus coming in, they um, take out palm branches. And again, palm branches are very clear in terms of their meaning. They are welcoming a king. They are welcoming a, ki a king. And how do I know that? Well, it says, in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. Okay, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And so why is that significant? What kind of king do they expect this Jesus to be? Well, David is known for a couple different things. Mainly he's a general and he fought battles on behalf of Israel. He repelled foreign attack on behalf of Israel against the Philistines. So. David is a military ruler. He's a military king. And so if Jesus is following in the line of David, then the expectation for what Jesus should do is he should also be a military general. He should be leading an army, okay? But instead of an army, he's 
And, and when you lead an army, you lead an army on a horse, and instead of a horse, he's on a, he's on a donkey. Okay, he's on a donkey. So it's kind of a peculiar, a strange thing. But there is no mistaking here. Jesus, everyone recognizes that this is the king. Now, when I say everyone, it probably wasn't known to the Roman authorities that he was proposing to be a king because if they recognized that, they would kill him. Because right now, Caesar is the only king. And any, any competitor, Caesar, um, would be eliminated. Okay? And so you have, this, uh, you have Jesus on this donkey, and he's a servant. And so let's just, in keeping with this metaphor of a Trojan horse, let's just think of Jesus as a Trojan donkey. Okay, he is the Trojan donkey, and that's what's happening here. And why do I say that? Well, it's going to be coming in, and this donkey is going to be a gift to Israel. And hopefully, what we what we see here is that Jesus is going to be throwing off Roman oppression. But let's keep reading. I'm going to read from verse 12 to verse 19. <clears throat> On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now, from what I've heard is a lot of you got stuck on this whole fig leaf stuff. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're just going to, we're going to, um, we're going to pause and not worry about the fig tree for now, because we're going to, we're going to come back to it because the fig tree comes later again. Okay, so we're going to just set that aside. And I would just recommend to you when you read something in the Bible that you're just like, what the heck, just bookmark it. Okay, don't let it trip you up. Just bookmark it and come back to it. Okay, that's, that's an important thing because sometimes we get tripped up and then we just stop and we give up. We're like, oh my gosh, this thing is so hard. Uh, and the Bible is challenging. It really is challenging. Um, but it's okay. Just, just put it aside and let's, let's read about this thing that Jesus does in the temple. Now, um, there are very few times where Jesus expresses anger. Very, very few times. But this is one of them. And notice that he just goes off here. He goes off in the temple. He goes off the way Jordan Peterson goes off about Twitter, okay? He goes off the way Eleven goes off on the Demogorgon, okay? He goes off the way Steph Curry destroyed the Celtics in game four of the NBA championships. He goes off the way Wayman Wang and his fanny pack goes off in four security guards. Someone got that. Um, so I don't know about the term cleaning house, but what I do know, I don't know that, I don't know the origin of the term cleaning house, but I do know that it doesn't mean scrubbing down and doing a deep clean. When someone says cleaning house, it means purgation. It means purge. It means get rid of all evil. And that's what Jesus does here. He cleans house. Okay, that's what he does. And what I think is so important about what Jesus does here is that, again, if you're thinking of him as a military ruler, he's supposed to fight the Romans, right? He's supposed to come in as a military ruler and fight off Roman oppression, but he doesn't do that. He goes into the heart of the city. He goes to the temple and he mounts an offensive. Again, he's the Trojan donkey. He mounts an offensive 
you know, a, a night later on the temple itself. So he mounts an internal, an, an internal attack on his own people, and not just his own people, but the leadership. And so first, I want to make no mistake, this is not reactive. This is not a rage, because if you go into verse 11, go back to verse 11, and it says, this is the first, when he arrives, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he's sitting on his donkey and he surveys the scene just like the Greeks did when they're sitting in the Trojan horse and he looks at what ha is happening. So he sees the tables, he sees the boxes, he sees every, all the setup for all the merchants that are gonna be in the temple. And so he notices it and he doesn't do anything that day. He's not cleaning house that day because it's not time. And the next day, that's what he does. So it is deliberate, it is planned. The second thing I want you to notice is that what Jesus is doing is very specific. He's targeted in who he's going after. Now, the common targets of that time probably would be someone on the periphery of Israelite society. It could it'd probably be like prostitutes, for instance. It's easy to go against prostitutes. Sinners, right? You could go against tax collectors. You could go against the poor. You could go against the disabled. You could go against the blind. But he's not going after any of those. He's actually going after Israel's leadership. Okay? And he's actually going after the rich, those who exploit the poor. And so let me take a moment and explain then, why would Jesus go after this particular group? And what is his deal with the merchants? What's wrong with making some money? Okay. Well, let me explain a couple things about the way the temple worked. You were supposed to bring sacrifices. You were supposed to bring an offering in order to gain access and receive blessing from God. And so the sacrificial system from the old covenant involved buying, purchasing something to make an offering. And so the offering could be a lamb or a goat, um, but in cases, especially for those who are poor, it could be a pigeon. And the idea was you just, you just brought that offering into the temple. And so, especially if you're poor, it would make sense for you to buy the pigeon where it was cheapest, right? Which was outside the temple. But what was happening in, in the Jerusalem temple is you weren't allowed to bring in your own offering. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if Disneyland still does this, but it kinda, it's kind of like Disneyland, right? Where um, you can't bring your own food. And so what happens at Disneyland, right? When you, when, you, when you can't bring in your own food, they like, it's highway robbery for this food, right? It's crazy, they charge two to three times. And in the, in the Jerusalem temple, if a pigeon costs $5 outside of it, I don't, know, I don't know that it costs $5, it's like 50 bucks in the temple, okay? And so the, the temple, the merchants in the temple were exploiting, especially foreigners, from being able to have access to God. And you wonder like, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, let me, let me give, a, let me give a, maybe a, a trivial example. Let me give a trivial example to just, to just help us understand how important the temple was. Judy and I just got back from our uh, Mexico, Mexico City anniversary trip. And we were really scared, and I was, because I'm super cheap, of like paying international roaming charges, right? I didn't want to use data. So I'm just walking around Mexico, we're walking around Mexico City, and I have data turned off, which is ridiculous because we don't speak Spanish. And so I'm using Google Lens to like translate everything, and I can't use it without connection. Um, and so the, uh, the beauty is every public park in Mexico City has free Wi-Fi. Okay, it's wild, okay? And so we would just hang out in public parks and use the free Wi-Fi, right? Because that's where we could get connected. <laughs> and so you can think of the temple as this is meant. Now, there's, there's a verse here. Jesus is quoting from a Psalm. 
Actually, it's Isaiah. Isaiah 56, 7. It says, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. Um, where is it? Verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What does that mean? The temple is the free Wi-Fi access point for all the nations. It's meant for, it's the public park that anyone can use and gain connection to God. And what, uh, what these Jerusalem merchants were doing is that they were charging for Wi-Fi, okay? And they were exploiting people to be able to use that, to be, be able to gain connection with God. And so Isaiah 56, seven, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is the place where anyone can have access to God. And the merchants were preventing that from happening. And so this internal attack that Jesus is doing is meant to be consistent with what the Old Testament is saying and prophesying about what the temple is supposed to be. It's meant for free access and the merchants were preventing that. And so Jesus is saying, you are not behaving consistently with the purpose of the temple. You are not behaving in a way that is consistent with allowing everyone, all the nations, all the Gentiles to gain access and be connected to God. And so in verse 18, it indicates the inevitable outcome of this attack, that it has to be repelled. And that's how the chief priests and scribes understood. And that's why they want to kill Jesus. And so this internal attack that Jesus is mounting, it's meant for the good of all people. And so we're going to keep reading. So we still have to make sense of the fig tree. Okay. And so this is my last point. It's about prayer and about judgment. Okay. Prayer and judgment. Now let me read Mark 11. 20 through 25. And thank you for staying with me. I think you're still with me. Hopefully there's gonna be a payoff. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, let's just acknowledge that. This is kind of crazy. This is like a, a huge abrupt subject change throughout this passage. Okay, so there's some wacky things that are going on here and it is not easy to unravel, but we are gonna attempt to do it. I'm gonna attempt to do it. Okay, so the first thing I want you to notice is that it goes back to the fig tree, okay? And so you have fig tree before cleaning house and then you have fig tree after, right? And then what I told you is to bookmark it and just keep going. And so now you have these two strange fig tree references and then you have cleaning house and the Jerusalem temple in the middle. Now the... Strategy, whenever you read the Bible, is whenever you see something confusing, but you have something clear next to it, is maybe make an assumption, okay? Start with an assumption that maybe this, this fig tree sandwich, there's like meat in the middle, okay? There's meat in the middle. So you have these two slices of fig tree bread, and you have this meat in the middle, and maybe they're connected, okay? So I would just want you to imagine as you come to this text, maybe that this thing with the temple is related to the fig tree. Okay, now how could it possibly be related? Well, 
Let's first understand this miracle that Jesus just done. And by the way, it is a miracle. The fig tree has withered. It has withered away. Before it had leaves. Now the leaves down to the root are withered. Every miracle up to this point has been constructive that Jesus has done. He has healed. He's, um, he's exercised, exercised demons. Um, he's given the blind sight. He just did that with Bartimaeus. And now in this instance, he's cursing this tree. And then he says, you should believe. You should, you should like do the same thing. So what's he saying here? I believe what, um, what Jesus is doing to this fig tree is a model of judgment. How is it a model of judgment? Well, what's he just done by cleansing the temple? He was exercising judgment, right? He has said, he has proclaimed, this is the purpose of the temple and you haven't lived according to the purpose of the temple. You have not behaved consistently with it. And so what is the, uh, there's, there's two purposes or outcomes when it comes to the way God judges. And the first one I think is obvious. The first thing that judgment does is it terminates. Okay, it terminates. Okay, so God's judgment destroys something when it needs to end. And notice like, for instance, um, judgment in God's economy is always about ending something in order that something new might begin. And so you take Noah's, the, the flood, for instance. The flood was destruction of the earth and yet it provided an opportunity for God to start over and for a covenant that God makes with Noah. And so whenever God ends something, something else begins. And so the question is, if God is, uh, if Jesus is cleaning house in the temple, is he making the way for something better? Absolutely, absolutely. He's terminating a way of relating to God that was restricted, that could be exploited and now providing free access, free Wi-Fi everywhere. <laughs> free Wi-Fi everywhere. That's what Jesus is bringing. But the only way to begin that is if he destroys the access point that is being exploited. And that's one purpose of judgment. It's to terminate so that something new can begin. Okay, second purpose. This one I want to, I want to spend a little more time on because it has to do with the, uh, the fig tree. Have you ever stood far away from something and it looked great and then you get closer and you're like, whoa, not so good, not so great. Um, I think there's an expression, good from afar, but far from good. So um, in verse 13, it says Jesus was hungry, right? In verse 13, it says Jesus was hungry. This is the first encounter with the fig tree and he sees the fig tree and it's got leaves. And so he goes to the fig tree and there's no fruit because the assumption is if you see a fig tree with leaves, that it's also got fruit because the leaves are a sign of health. And then Jesus curses it. And so let me get to the second aspect of judgment, that judgment exposes, okay? Judgment exposes. Judgment shows something for what it really is. And so Jesus has this expectation as he first encounters this fig tree with leaves that it's got fruit, but it doesn't. And it's kind of strange because it says it's not the season for figs. But Jesus is like, look, I was hungry. I saw something that looked good, but it didn't actually have any fruit to it. Okay, so let me give, let me give an example. This chair, you know, from afar, Looks, looks great. You know, it looks great. It's only until you, um, hopefully it'll, right. It's only when you sit on it uh, that you see that it doesn't, uh, <laughs> it's broken. We actually have a lot of chairs like this. Like Mo and we actually have a lot of chairs like this. And you know what we have to do when we find a chair like this? We have to keep it totally separate from all the other chairs. Because the, the problem is from afar, especially I can, I can like kind of finagle it here. Oh, I, I just damaged it like permanently. Okay, you can, you, can make it, you can make it so that it looks fine 
And we have to completely separate the chair from all the other chairs because what will happen is people will continue to try to sit in those chairs. Like we have to put them outside. We have to put in like separate rooms because it looks good. It looks like it works. And that's the Jerusalem temple. It looks like it operates. There are leaves on the Jerusalem temple and people think that you can depend on it. But once you go to it, it's exploitive and it's manipulative and it goes against the very purpose from which it was intended because judgment exposes. And the reason Jesus um, curses the fig tree, he's just showing the true nature of the fig tree, that when something doesn't bear fruit, it needs to die because it's not consistent with its intended purpose. So when Jesus operates as a Trojan donkey, okay, and mounts an eternal attack, it's because the purpose of the organization or the purpose of that institution is no longer functioning correctly. And the only way to remedy it is to destroy it, is to clean house. And by doing so, you, cleanse, you, you, ex, you end it, and then you expose its true nature. So it's actually good that it, uh, I really completely broke this. Now no one's gonna sit on it because it's been exposed, right? I have now exposed it. Um, but that's what Jesus does. And the question for us, okay, the question for us as Christians is, is this our job? Are we supposed to take things in our own hands, terminate and expose? Well, let's, let's read carefully what it says toward the end of this passage. Okay, well, Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And in verse 20, it says, withered away to its roots. And then Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that it will come to pass, it will be done for him. It is easy to strip that verse out of its context and say, Jesus has given us a blank check to do whatever we want. But given the context of what this passage is teaching, I believe what Jesus is saying is it's a supernatural miracle that only God does to judge. That God is the one who terminates and that God is the one who exposes. And so the way that we're supposed to exercise dependence on him through prayer is to ask God to judge those institutions that are broken and corrupt and manipulative. Okay, that's our job. I mean, our job is to ask God to do his job. Okay, that means we need to be very careful to assume the place of God and to sit um, and terminate institutions and to sit and to sit in judgment um, and expose institutions. Okay, maybe, maybe we, but we pray for that. We pray that, we pray that God would do so. Now, I know there are instances throughout, throughout church history um, where men and women have done that, have, have taken the role of God in doing so. And perhaps there is an opportunity to do that. And yet what this passage is teaching is we depend on God to determinate those institutions, right? We depend on God to expose them. That's what prayer is about. That's what dependence on him. Now, then this crazy thing where in 24, it says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Okay, so there's this idea of consistency. If you're asking God to do this, that you earnestly believe, that you have this earnestness in faith. Um, and then there's the strangest thing, and this is the, this is the part that uh, I really struggle with, but I, I, think I, I think I got. And then whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, so how does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? What does that mean? Well, number one, when you pray for forgiveness, Okay, when you pray to forgive other people or you pray to receive forgiveness, 
you've got to recognize those things are connected, okay? Those things are connected. So when it comes to the way that you view other people and the way you, you view your own forgiveness, those things are related to one another, okay? They're absolutely connected. And what Jesus is saying here is when you're, um, the way that you understand me, the way that you understand my forgiveness is the extent to which you forgive other people. And so what Jesus is saying is that he values internal consistency, okay? He values that every ask, the, 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 what is going on inside of our hearts be whole, okay? Be integrated with each other because you can't understand how God forgives you if you don't forgive other people. So there's a connection between the two. And the whole premise of this uh, attack that Jesus is doing within the temple is that there wasn't internal consistency in the temple, okay? It didn't operate according to its purpose. And so what Jesus is saying is you need internal consistency, okay? And he is willing to mount an internal attack within us so that we would have it because this is the glory of the gospel. That in the way that Jesus works in our life, he is this kind of Trojan donkey who sneaks in to our life gently and secretly, maybe much in the way that Nathan the prophet confronts David. And in that story of Nathan confronting David about his sin, he, he tells a story. Okay, he tells a story where David doesn't believe that he's the object of the story, and yet he is. And that twist takes place at the very end. And what Nathan's point was is that David did not behave in a way that was consistent with his purpose and with God's intention for him. But it took this secret offensive within, um, that Nathan launches within David's heart to help him see that. And I believe that's what God is doing today is that through the gospel, he is constantly wanting to find a way to get inside our hearts to end and put to death to terminate the things that are evil and to give us new life and to expose. And so the sharing question today is describe a moment when Jesus mounted a secret offensive within you, okay? Where he mounted a secret offensive within you, where you thought he was, may have been affirming something about you and that's okay and, that, and I think that's great, but it turned out to challenge or confront some aspect of yourself, some aspect of your heart that needed to be blown up, that needed to be attacked and that needed to end on the cross and to die so that Jesus could give new life. And so I've been thinking about that question. I think it's important for me um, asking that question um, to also share an example. And so recently um, I had a friend who wounded me um, because he, he said something that is very true about me um, that I often, he, he basically said, Fred, you're a mean person. You know, he said, Fred, you're a mean person. Um, and he did it in a very harsh way um, and he did it in anger. And so from that point forward, um, every time I thought about him, I was like, I don't, I don't wanna be around you. <laughs> that was really mean. I was like, I was really kind of angry. Um, and I was real, as I was preparing this message, I thought to myself, you know, um, maybe, the, maybe the fact that I want to avoid him is often how people feel when they're around me. That the experience that I'm having towards him is the experience that other people have towards me. And so it was kind of like God showing, bringing a mirror to myself to expose some ways in which I have not acted 
in my heart consistently with what forgiveness is about. Because really what I was having trouble with is I was having trouble forgiving him. And I realized, you know what? If I can't do that, it means I don't really understand forgiveness. And once I was able to kind of turn it around, I was like, Jesus, I need you. I need that condemning and prideful attitude to end. And I crucify that. I terminate that. Thank you for exposing it in my life. Thank you for that secret offensive. And Lord, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I can have, along with the death, I can also have new life. So that's an example of a secret offensive. And so today, if you're thinking, um, I just want to leave like two points, right? Number one, that Jesus's priority is not to attack the outsider. His was to attack religious leadership. So as Christians, we need to, and you often know I do this, I often attack and talk about what Christians do, okay? Because it's not our job to judge what the rest of the world does. It's our job as insiders to judge ourselves and to recognize where there's truth and lie. And then lastly, that God, is mount, that God wants to mount a secret offensive within us. And that's the way of the cross so that we could receive death in order to receive life. Let's pray together. God, you are gentle and yet you are not always safe. And Lord, thank you that when you are not safe, you attack us in order for us to receive good. And so Lord, um, thank you for, the, for this text that what it's teaching us is that you are not afraid to confront evil, to terminate evil and to expose it. And you do that with evil institutions, with corrupt institutions. And so Lord, we pray in faith that you would judge corrupt institutions, that you would terminate the evil, that you would expose it and that you would bring good in its place. And Lord, thank you that by the cross, you have terminated the ultimate evil, the evil that exists within us. And so Lord, thank you for the gospel that in your death and resurrection, you have mounted the secret offensive in our hearts so that we could die to be raised to life. So Lord, would you terminate the evil? Would you expose it so that we would receive new life in you and experience what it means to be a new creation? We pray this in your name. Amen.